Hi, this is Jodie Kidd. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to the Chubb interviews this year. Coming up are some of the highlights from the series. Enjoy the best of 2021. The Chubb interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882. So my guest today is one of the most recognizable personalities in the car world. I'm delighted to say we are joined by the brilliant Richard Hammond. Ooh, thank you for brilliant. I like that. No, that that's that that's very in. good. Thank I, you. I ad-libbed that one. That's very kind. It's <laughs> a kind ad-lib. Where did it all start for you? Is there a particular person? It was inevitable from the very beginning. My grandfather was a coach builder at Mulliners in Birmingham. So I totally grew up. That's what we did. We're Brummies that built cars. And then he latterly worked at Jensen, inspecting the cars off the line. So it was kind of inevitable I'd drift towards it. Then after I'd been politely asked to leave Sixth Form College. Oh, I was the same. Yeah, there was a suggestion I might do better somewhere else. They didn't mind where as long as it was somewhere else. Yeah. So I then went to art college and I was brilliant at that because I went straight into radio, <laughs> the most visual of medium, and gradually drifted towards, I always wanted to do cars and very, very briefly after eight years of starving to death in radio I realised this is really hard. Yeah, I was yeah, a little northern boy by then so I got a job working at Renault UK in the press office so that I got to know all the editors of all the car shows and it worked. It took 30 years but it worked. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. And then I suppose you burst onto our screens. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you. I, I think shuffled, on, shuffled onto your screens, but okay. Shuffled. Okay. But I bet there was a lot of hard work involved in getting there. There must have been also a little bit of fate, I suppose. Were you at the right place at the right time? Uh, my industry is founded on luck. You can convince yourself otherwise, and that's fine. And sometimes you need to. Sometimes you need to say, yeah, I'm good at this. I must be good at this. If you're going to say something on telly that's going to be seen by 365 million people across the world, you've got to think, well, it might be all right. But actually, it's luck. It is right place, right time. And I've been hideously and fantastically lucky, and I'm very, very grateful for it. Oh, my goodness. I'm I mean, sure not always lucky. There not, were unlucky oh, moments exactly. as well. Think, well, we'll go into that later on. So I'm sure that we've all got our favourite moments from your time in TV, um, particularly with your two amigos. But can you give us some of your most outstanding memories? From the Top Gear days, when we started, we had no idea that it was going to grow. And by the way, there was no science to that. We never thought, oh, if we make a car show in this way, it'll resonate around the world. We just thought, what's the best car show we can make together? And how would we do that? And it was when we were doing a piece on buying budget supercars you'll laugh, we had a, a Maserati a Bora. Yeah. yeah, that's a budget car these days. <laughs> but it was back then. Uh, and a little uh, a Ferrari uh, 308 GT4. Again, no, it was car. worth 10p back then. That was Amazing. mine. And James had a little Lamborghini. And we, we turned up in a petrol station and people reacted to us differently. And we thought, oh, hang on. It's broadened. It wasn't just car fans. It had a broader appeal. And that's because I think the show always focused on people and cars. And that's what I love about it. You know, my grandfather engaged with the cars in a very physical, visceral way because he made them. Yeah. Uh, but they form part of our lives. So it's when cars and people combine. That's where the life comes in. And we reflected that in the show. Yeah. But an absolutely key moment was when we did a special in Botswana. It turned from being one film in a show into the whole show. And people loved it. And we had such an extraordinary time. It's when I drove that little yellow 62 Opel Cadet that I called Oliver that I still have. Probably that was a highlight. I suppose we all look at it and we just go, wow, that just looks like the best job in the world. 
But it's really, really hard work. Yeah, yeah, it's a really difficult job because it's like you know, other people's supercars. I have to drive them. That's really, you know, challenging. No, but I mean, like the hours, especially when you're doing. Your I specials. can't claim that. I can get zero pity <laughs> from anybody. I can crawl out of a tent pitched at forty-five degrees in a Bolivian ditch. It's full of cockroaches, and I've had two hours sleep, and we're starting again the next day. And there's a poisonous spider in my car. All of those things have happened, yeah. but there is still no pity available, and neither should there be. It's much better than working for a living. It is time to say hello to our special guest. I'm very, very excited. The legendary Ian Callum. Hi, Ian. How are you? Hello. I'm fine. I'm fine. Legendary. That's overdoing it a little bit, I think. Oh, come on. You are. What design out of all your cars is your favourite? Have you got a favourite? Oh, Jody. Who's your favourite child, you know? Come on, there's got to be one. You know, every car has a story to tell. And people buy cars because of the story in so many ways. I think the I-Pace is probably going to end up my favourite because in terms of significance, and I frustrate at the lack of significance other people in the business see in the I-Pace. It was a hugely forward-looking car. And I have to say, in this case, it really was my vision to do that car in terms of its overall shape and form and how it worked out. You know, most cars end up an end result of um, a number of people's ideas and I can bring them together and, and make sure they're right. But this is something that I was very proud of and I wanted a, I'd always wanted to do a cab-forward, mid-engine, four-seater car. Well, by the nature of it, you're not going to get a mid-engine, four-seater car, are you? Because the people kind of conflict with the engine. But this was an opportunity to do that and that's what we created. And even when I see one today, I just get a real tingle when I see it. They're a complete breakaway from what you would expect from Jaguar in, in, in the most conservative sense. It did shock and surprise a lot of people, especially our competitors. I take great pride in that. That's what Jaguar is about. Designers have a perception of what's happening out there and what people, how people are reacting, not just in the car world, but sociologically as well. And um, we did the CX-75 10 years ago now. It was a hybrid electric race car, sports car. It didn't reach production, which was always a bit of a frustration to me. But technically, it's one of the most advanced cars in the world and aesthetically, probably one of the most beautiful. And so our next opportunity was going to be the I-Pace. So it, it, Ford suddenly announced they're going to go electric and Volkswagen have already said it. So, you know, lo and behold, the whole world will be electric by 2030. It's good to say it and it's good to give you know, affirmation and confirmation rather to the fact that the company is moving forward into tomorrow's world with gusto. He's one of the legendary characters in this wonderful business. It's Tolly Aratunov. You've had such an interesting and varied life. You've done so many races. You've done a load of track racing and road racing, and you did it in such a cool era as well. You probably met some true greats in motorsports. Was there one person that you think that really stood out? Well, it's hard to beat Sterling Moss. We were at the Targa Florio in 1963, but Sterling was at Ed and Sicily with the BBC film crew going to all the races, the, the tracks where he had, had run before his accident in Goodwood Easter Monday. We were together for, and I mean in the same hotel, about a week. Incredibly charming man. So Sterling said, well, you have a Flaminia Zagato. I've never driven one. Could we go out for us? Of course, you know. So I got in the passenger seat and it's at night. And of course in Sicily, and there was a black top road, women wearing black, walking by black donkeys. And uh, off we go, and the headlights were American, weren't very good. It was a low-seated car, and Sterling's driving, winding it up through the gears on this road with occasional pedestrians. And as we're charging along, and now we're into third gear, and I realize up ahead is a humpback bridge. 60, 70 feet on the other side is an almost 90-degree right turn. And I remember thinking, 
You know, in the future, they'll say, Toli Aratunov. Wasn't he that guy that was killed in Sicily with Sterling Moss, kind of like Ed Nelson and Marquis de Portago in the Millie? I mean, it just went through my mind. And so we launched off the bridge, and Sterling's still chatting away, and he does something. I swear the car turned in midair, and he landed. And so 25 years later, I mentioned that to him, and he said, yes, I'd forgotten about that bridge, too. That's why I was talking so fast, that I was slightly concerned. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. It is time to say hello to our special guest. It is Max Girado. What was the most exciting sell that you ever did? You know, it's a bit cliche because it's sort of high value and it's a Ferrari and so on. But but we sold in the Monterey auction the 275 Nart Spider, which was a one owner from new car. It was estimated at the time at sort of 18 to 22 million dollars. And the bidding in the room was absolutely electric. It was going up in million-dollar increments until it made $26 million. But the wow. best bit of it all, the gentleman that bought and you passed away, the kids were selling the car. They were all in the room. And, you know, the best bit is that he was an orphan and they were donating all of the money, everything from that sale of that car, to orphanages and, oh, uh, and to build more orphanages. Well, the hammer came down and I promise you, I was in front of like a thousand people. I was almost in tears because oh. I saw them, all the family crying and I thought yeah. I was going to start crying. So oh. that is one that I'll remember forever. Absolutely forever. Magical. Magical. And you've been all around the world to do auctions. What was the most, not terrifying, but what was the, well, I suppose it was, was it your first time that you ever stood up and did an auction? Definitely. I was absolutely terrified. I got handed, you know, a book of, you know, because you start small, right? So 30 lots of memorabilia. I'll never forget 30 mascots. And I looked at them. I thought, number one, who's ever going to bid on a mascot? I mean, this is going to be, they're like feeding me to the sharks. I was petrified I, for, for days before I wasn't speaking to anyone. I was so scared. <laughs> I remember the hour before thinking to myself, why did I say do this? I don't get it. This is horrendous. I never wanted to do this again. Oh, <laughs> but then you yeah, forget, yeah, right? Exactly. You do it and then you forget. <laughs> and then you want to do it again. <laughs> and I suppose another question is, where is that point? Let's say we were talking about that Ferrari and you are going up millions. Where is that point where you suddenly have to bring it down to hundreds of thousands or bring it down to thousands? Or Well, yeah, that's all about the room. That's all about the feeling. That's all about, you know, reading your bidders. When they stop bidding, that's when you can offer a smaller increment. But at which point... You know, you want to keep momentum and the energy going. So I think that's down to the skill of the auctioneer reading the room and knowing when to change it up, when not to change it up. You know, if you have good energy, you can also increase increments. You don't always have to decrease them. So that's all down to managing your bidders and the room. And then you've moved on. So after Sotheby's in 2016, you decided to go out and do it on your own. So what prompted that? You know, I loved my time at RM Sotheby's. I loved being an auctioneer. I did it for 12 years. I would do it uh, all again. I learned so much. But it was time to do something different. You only live once. My dad always told me that he should have started his own business a long time ago. And, and unfortunately, I lost him very, very suddenly. He, he passed away. And I thought to myself, you know, sometimes you just have to take a jump and do it for yourself because it's going to be a challenge, because it's fun to start a new business, build something new. It doesn't come overnight. It's been 20 years in the car world. And I'm really pleased to say that I've got some really good clients that have become really good friends as well. So I think that makes a big difference. And then, of course, you just have to put in the hard work, speak to everyone, look for the cars, because it's not easy to find them. It's not easy to uncover them. So hard work and good relationships. We've brought together two guys who probably know more about this incredible car than anyone else. They run two of the UK's foremost E-type specialist businesses, 
We've got Marcus Holland of E-Type UK and Paul Brace of Eagle. Between the two guests, we'll have the E-Type story well and truly covered from 1961 all the way up to 2021. When I did become aware of cars, which was at quite an early age, the E-Type always was just one of the greatest and the coolest things. Just look at the thing. It's just got such a dramatic and amazing shape. Even now it looks incredible, but when you look back photographs of other cars that were on the streets uh, in the 60s I mean when I look at films now that are based in the 60s and, and you look at how different those cars were and how comparatively dull they were the E-Type must have actually looked like a spaceship driving around on the road and that's what did it I think you know I'm always fascinated by the guys that were around when it was launched and they talk about it with such passion and, and it's as if their eyes are lighting up when they're talking about you know the first time they saw an E-Type and when it was launched and the effect that it had on them there were some amazing stories around the E-Types launch. We were really lucky to have David Gandhi on the podcast last year, and he talked about the moment that Norman Dewis, he played quite a key role in the Geneva launch, didn't he? Can you tell us a little bit about that? The story is Jaguar folklore and, and legendary, and, and Norman Dewis himself is revered and admired amongst uh, Jaguar circles, and and, uh, and and broader than that, absolutely. I mean, the story goes that he was off uh, testing in the morning, and then got approached by the track manager and told that Jaguar wanted to see him back in Coventry, and he headed back across, and he got told that due to you know high demand of people wanting to test drive the E-Type, he, uh, he had to get over to Geneva uh, as soon as possible, and he thought that he would have enough time to kind of grab something to eat and, and some clothes. And little did he know that they'd already sent someone around to his uh, wife to pick up a bag for him to head over to Geneva. And apparently averaging, you know, 68 miles per hour, covering it in 11 or so hours. I think even by today's standards, that would be quite a feat to undertake. Very impressive. Yeah. And all of that in in what people commonly associate now with cars from the 60s which are inherently unreliable and and you wouldn't possibly dare take that journey on but you know you, you forget quite quickly that even then you know the cars were were extremely reliable and he was actually there with time to spare the chub interviews with jody kidd i'm delighted to welcome mr jww himself james william walker what's been your favorite car related moment to this day when i say this i'm still in disbelief that it actually happened but Renault Formula One team they casually dropped me an email it wasn't like a call or imagine this email landing in your inbox so this is from Renault Formula One team they said would you like to come and drive this was the the ex Kimi Raikkonen 2013 F1 car so the last of the naturally aspirated cars yes. they said we'd like to put you in this F1 car at Paul Ricard I thought it was such nonsense. I actually stuck it in joke? the uh, bin. No, I'm dead serious. I actually erased it because I thought someone wants some credit card details or something. Yeah, yeah, I was like, exactly. this is, there's no way. And then three days later, their technical partner on their hybrid drivetrain, which was Infinity at that time, yeah. they sent me a second email saying, just checking you got the email about driving the F1 car. And oh I was like, Christ, goodness. yeah, I did. So I ended up phoning up those guys. Long story short, yeah, I drove Kimmy's 2013 F1 car at Paul, Paul Ricard. And, and I mean, that was not even a, this is a top five life moment, not yeah. even car moment. It was yeah, the yeah. most pinch yourself, unbelievable thing. And what made it really special was it was a full factory supported experience. It wasn't a 
privateer that owned yes, this you car. Had the full mechanics yeah, everywhere. the reason I was there was Renault were putting their junior drivers through enough seat time to qualify for their super license, yeah. and literally on their lunch break they said, "Now you hop in." <laughs> it was honestly, it was the most abstract yeah. thing, and uh, it was crackers. Yeah, well, that journey it wasn't just like come down and hop in. That was three months worth of jumping through hoops and meeting certain criteria. I spent quite a lot of time in a simulator, an annoying amount of time in a classroom, talking right. about all the functionality of the car on the yeah. uh, steering wheel. Because they're not uh, easy to drive. They are not easy. Uh, they put me in a Formula Renault for two days. That was great. Had to meet certain criteria there. Yeah. Uh, and then on the final stretch, also throughout all of this, uh, I had to have a seat fitting early on and they said, you cannot change weight, you cannot change size, right. you have to stay as you are because the configuration of the seat and the car and everything will be for you. And I was like, really? Banned, banned from <laughs> yeah. pizzas. Banned from pizzas. <laughs> that experience uh, was absolutely insane. Amazing. To the extent where afterwards I phoned my dad afterwards and I was actually crying. I was like, I couldn't believe yeah, what bet. had just happened. It was the most insane thing. I'm surprised he didn't come down and join you. I know, actually. it was wild. I know. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> Who's your favorite car related celeb that you've met? Probably Alan Prost. That guy's a dude. I'm not sure people are aware of how still heavily involved he still is. His influence in Renault in the background is still there. Mm -hmm. And um, every now and again, if you're watching F1, you might see a flash of him in the pits. Yeah. And he's still really hands-on, so yeah. that's cool. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. Time to say hello to our special guest, Richard Gauntlet. I've heard that your first drive in an Aston Martin was a DB2. I mean, how was that? Such an iconic car. I'll go back a little further. You know, in the interest of being really correct, because the first Aston I had, which did have an Aston chassis number, was built for my brother and I, which was a four-sevenths, I think, scale, or uh, half-scale Volante, V8 Volante. Ooh, wow. so, and that was with a little Honda motor, and um, there's some great pictures of us driving around near the factory in that. But yes, my first insured drive in an Aston, which I thought was appropriate, my first insured drive, I think, was the DB2. Having grown up with those wings appearing and disappearing down the driveway every day and it being such a process, the whole Aston thing, it's unusual for me to understand what that brand means to other people. It's like burnt into my retinas and my memory. And it's, yeah, it's almost like if you see your own name, from 10 yards away on a piece of large paper, you recognize your own name. And when I see that, I, I see it from a great distance and it brings back all sorts of things. And your dad was such a huge supporter of motorsport and he was really instrumental in getting the Aston Martin brand back on the track. I mean, how important was that to him? Well, I think he saw it as hugely important because again, he came, from, you know, in that time it was. I mean, if you think of um, who was racing at Le Mans in those days, the amount of major manufacturers doing you know, full works teams, not not works supported or works derived. You know, they were full works teams. So I think he saw it as hugely important. And, and I think it was a great opportunity to prove what he knew to be true. That was Aston had skills and engineering potential far beyond its means. And I think, you know, when they came seventh in 1989, but that was against Porsche, Mercedes, Jaguar. It was a huge achievement for a hand-built engine and a, <laughs> a hand-built carbon tub. Would you say that without your father, Aston Martin would not be the brand that it is today? 
Well, I, that's where I really can hear him talking. It's absolutely not really for me to comment. Um, <laughs> lots, lots of people are very sweet in saying um, amazing things. And, and yeah, certainly I, I know that um, many people do herald him as a saviour of it. And, um, you know, I think it could have disappeared again, that's for sure. And um, it would be strange if Aston Martin was some funny company that stopped making cars in 1980. It would be a very different uh, sort of viewpoint. You're listening to highlights from the Chubb interview series with me, Jodie Kidd. So it's time to say hello to our special guest. It's Fabrizio Giugiaro. Where do you get your inspiration from? Does it just pop into your head or does it come from art or travels? Or Yes, it is true that I've been lucky with my father to travel since I was younger to Japan. And Japan teach me a lot about the taste about the synthesis of the things, about many things that I could use and I can use still today in my job. There's no a specific inspiration. I'm not looking at the curves <laughs> or whatever. It's a really a method that at the end allowed us to create a new shape. My father is saying very easily, uh, it's like a, an athlete that jump two meters. He's not jumping one day. He's jumping one meter and a half, one meter and sixty, one meter and eight, and one day arrive one at two meters. So because we are every day involved on that, at the end he said, we are stupid if we are not doing well our job because we are doing every day. And it is true that living in Italy, we are surrounded by historical beauty, and uh, of course helped a lot our Italian, let me say, generation of good designer. We are not the only one. Today's guest is one of the world's foremost car collectors, Roger Dudding. Where did you even start this incredible collection of cars that you've got? About late 1960s, into the 1970s, my late wife got rather sort of peeved with my filling the drive up. I mean, we had a large house, you know, big driveway, quad garage, but it's always full up with a new pet I bought. So that prompted me to buy what was originally a tram shed converted it as a, a place to put my toys in. And that's really where it could gather momentum. And I started buying more and more wide variety of vehicles. And that's now extended even further where we store the balance of our collection, which is now over 450 classic motor vehicles, as well as offering the maximum security storage for clients who we saw a lot of cars for clients. So do you think that your love of cars and purchasing the cars that you needed to put into storage was the start of your business? Yes, that sort of led to it. The business aspect was secondary, uh, but it really fell into that by default because we started buying more and more. The people would ask us to look after their cars. Then they'd ask us, would we organise you know, to sell the vehicle for them, either by auction or by private treaty? You know, the vehicles we look after for wide variety of clients, many under non-disclosure you know, deals or agreements, is Exotica. And I happen to be an engineer for my sins. And we baby these vehicles. We really look after them, treat them you know, with more respect than we do our own. And that quite obviously inculcates confidence in our existing clientele which then leads to more clients. And everybody's happy bunnies, so their pride and joy is looked after. Absolutely. And how many garages do you think you've got now? Oh, what in my, my garage business? I think at the uh, last count, we'd gone to about 14,500. I looked at that as a potential business, what, maybe 30 years ago. 
I've got this rather large collection of lockup garages all over the country, and I'd probably buy another site to add to our enormous collection, which would become a sizable business in itself. Fantastic. And just even a bigger excuse for you to get more cars. <laughs> well, that's absolutely true. Yeah, that, that's how the thing has grown. Someone that wants to use the word exponentially, I think it's probably about right. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to this other than, you know, I happen to like motor vehicles. Our oldest vehicle is 1900. Uh, we go through the whole range right up to, you know, present day Jag or Ferrari or what have you or rolls, but they are fun. If, if you don't like motor cars, so then obviously it's not for you. Yeah, don't, don't worry, they, your... they won't be listening. <laughs> they won't be listening uh, yeah, exactly, people that don't like exactly. motor cars. It's something which I, I enjoy, and it's and it's great fellowship with people you meet. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. It's time to say hello to our special guest, Mark Lyon. I think the thing for me that's special about Ferraris is that nearly everything they did worked very well, but was also aesthetically pleasing, which is very important in an engineering way i mean not okay the cars are beautiful but every bracket you pick up every linkage you look at every bolt you touch is just done so well other car manufacturers simply don't do that i think in those earlier years the very late 70s and the 80s there was still a very strong bunch of people who thought the cars were special they thought they were special because they wanted to use them they wanted to drive them they wanted to race them have some fun in them and i think that's changed a lot now what were the prices like back then to now? I mean, what do you think that moment was where suddenly someone went, oh my goodness, the 250 short wheelbase or the GTO or, you know, where it suddenly, where it all went just mad? I think it started to go mad in the mid to late 80s. And of course, we had a big dip at the end of the 80s. You know, I've seen three recessions in my time in this industry. My old boss came into the workshop and said, a 250 GTO has just sold for £100,000. And it was, like <gasps> a, it, was, it was like a big piece of news. Wow. What were they before the crash? I think in the 87, 88 era, they'd have been probably three million, something like that. Right. Wow. That is unbelievable. Gosh, if we only knew back then. <laughs> there is something about the craft of doing restoration in Britain. And we do it really, really well here. Why do you think that is? I think there's a lot of cottage industries in Britain. I mean, not just in the car industry, but in, in many areas. And that mentality, we're very good at making small numbers of things. If someone said to someone in England, can you make 10 of these? They would say, that's fine, that's ideal. If you said to them, can you make 100? They wouldn't be quite so good at it. Whereas in America, if you said to someone make 10 of it, they couldn't. But if you said make 1,000, they could. So I am delighted to welcome James Warren, who's the commercial director of Lunas Design. What do you think about the infrastructure? Is there a point now where companies are going to have to start putting much more pressure on getting a more easier, should we say, kind of infrastructure set up, as in charging on the road, etc.? When do you ever drive 300 miles in a day or 250 miles in a day? You actually break it down. It's probably it's a few times a year, in which case you make a little plan. It's nice to have a break. Fast charging is unbelievable. It's growing every day. I've got really used to getting out of this cycle of charging every day and you know, just having the confidence with it to the point, I think I'm probably six months in. I took a long journey and I didn't look at the mileometer. I didn't look at the range. 
I knew I'd made my plan. That was it. And it was just, it was a little moment of like, all oh, right, we've broken the habit. We're, we're out of that now. And, you know, so, so on that side of it, definitely. And then look, look on a much kind of greater scale, markets are going to do the job for us. I mean, we, we all know we're pushing towards these clean air power trends. I think that grim pandemic that we've all gone through, you know, there were our upsides when we walked around London and we could see the sky and it was... Yes, you could breathe. You could taste the air. It was unbelievable. You know, we all know the benefits and we all know that this is coming. And, and look, markets will do the job. There's some amazing companies out there coming up with great solutions, contactless charging. I met a lady yesterday and she showed us what they're piloting in Buckinghamshire. It's super smart. So for people who haven't got driveways, so on street parking, there's a little groove in the pavement. So the wire sits from their house, sits in there really comfortably. I said, the hundreds of millions that are being raised and invested in this, someone comes up with a little trench in the road and it works perfectly. Look, it's like anything in life. It's going to be a blended approach. And let's face it, getting incredibly highly explosive liquid into fuel tanks around the world is a complicated business. But market forces allowed that to happen. And I'm optimistic that, that we as humans will figure it out. And it's, uh, it's exciting. We should, we should embrace the change. So during the series, we've been running a special theme called One Piece at a Time, where we ask our guests to select one prized automotive possession that means a lot to them. So, Rich, can you tell us what your one piece is? I've still got the crash helmet I was wearing when I crashed at 320 miles an hour, and there's a big dent in the side. I keep that, but it makes people squirm a bit when you look at it. I've got so many bits of broken cars (laughs) from my entire life. I brought a watch with me. I'm always conscious about... I have lucky watches and unlucky watches. And this is a little tag that I wore when I crashed at 320 and it survived. Because I also wore, when I got stuck upside down in the Rimac, I was wearing a Rolex, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Hey, yes. But I got it caught on the seatbelt. Uh-huh. I couldn't get the seatbelt off. And it really, I'm not joking, it was upside down, dangling about, cars on fire, can't get that off. I've got because a choice. Ch- it's like a movie, this, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I've got a choice. And I clenched my jaw and it went like that when I said that, very manly. I've got a choice right now, <laughs> me or the watch. And I thought, well, watch off. So it burned for three weeks inside the car. So I have that one and it's charred and burned and ruined. And Rimac found it for me. You know Matteo Rimac. Utterly charming, lovely, very talented man. And him and his team had got the watch out of the charred, ruined remains of his valuable car and had mounted it on a little plinth. And lovely. it said, made by the Swiss in 2000-whatever, destroyed by the British in whatever. <laughs> What I then did was drop the box and snapped the thing that it's mounted on. What is wrong with you? I crashed the box he gave me containing the watch to celebrate the car I crashed of his. Yep. Anybody want to lift home? No? <laughs> no. Okay. So this is my dad's skid lid. It's shocking to see how little protection these afford. Um, but this is the lid he used to race in and uh, it sits in my office. I also have a photo next to it of him in his car on the starting line wearing this lid. Yeah, it's probably my most prized automotive possession. Means nothing to anyone else and has absolutely zero value. If it was to go missing, it would break my heart. And hopefully I can pass this down to my boy too. And um, I think it's just a symbol of how much cars has been in the family, really. Yeah, Yeah, it just really acts as a lot of inspiration for me. And uh, it does. Half of the goggles have tape on. That was their idea of a visor back then. And um, just feel that it's it's actually... And I think it's just like fiberglass or something. It's the most ridiculously... Yes, you uh, useless want to, you piece of headgear. Not at all. No. When I picked this up yesterday to bring it down here, I had my 
helmet now next to it. Yeah. And I'm not exaggerating when I say they are twice the size. They're so small. When I won the national championship in 1981, and then I was awarded the President's Cup, and I got a letter from Ronald Reagan. In those days, the President's Cup always got a letter from the president. As far as one single artifact, I think that's what would be it. It's a helmet, and it has a beautiful enamel St. Christopher medal on the forehead and an old-fashioned visor. And it's a, it's a Herbert Johnson cardboard box with its stamps on. And I'm sure you're all aware of the Brooklyn's track. And most people will know that it closed before the Second World War, just before the Second World War, and it never reopened. You might also know that when you, when you go around the Brooklyn's track, when you did go around it, if you attained an average speed higher than 120 miles an hour, you got a special badge. And 17 people did higher than 130 miles an hour average speeds. So there are only 17 130 mile an hour badges. And this helmet, and next to it is the 130 mile an hour badge, was won by George Harvey Noble in a Bentley, wearing this helmet in the last race on the afternoon of August the 7th, 1939, which was the last ever race at Brooklands. And it was three weeks before war broke out. I've actually got goosebumps. Yeah, and I mean, so, so I mean, I, I look at it every day and I, I still get goosebumps and I've got the photograph of him in that car and you can clearly see the helmet. And the, and it's just, to me, that's the closest in my lifetime I'll ever come to time travel. And it's just really awesome. And you think of the, you know, the context and the world as it was then and one last sunny day at Brooklands before all hell broke loose. I think it's quite something. We've got a set of carburetors here in our lobby, which are very special to me. They're off a single-seater Ferrari from the 50s, and we rebuilt a few of them over the many years we've been doing this, and they're such a beautiful object, and it's something that I walk past every day and still like looking at it. Mine is a pink Bakelite telephone, which you might think, what on earth is he talking about? When we bought the original James Young donor phantom for our demonstration phantom, and now, now in customer hands, the car arrived in a pretty sorry state, you know, as, as these things are. But we found in the rear a pink Bakelite telephone, which in 1961, the original owner had had installed into the car so they can carry on with their business. And I just think that is the coolest thing in the world. We're actually going to get it converted to a sat phone for a customer, which I think would be very cool. So I'm going to have to get a replica made to sit on my desk. It's my favorite thing I've ever found in a car. I have so many special things now over the last 20 years, but... The one piece that I absolutely adore and cherish is I was given a book when I left, Jaguar, from my team. And it's a properly bound book. It's a beautiful book. It's a picture of me in the cover, unfortunately, <laughs> but uh, I suppose that was inevitable. It's beautifully made. That's the first thing. But each page has got a drawing from one of the designers in it and a comment. But it is something that I cherish because it just showed the love that uh, they, they demonstrated towards me and uh, hopefully the love that I demonstrate towards them. Wonderful group of people. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to The Chubb Interviews this year. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.